Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Lois Lupica, resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute, and I'm joined today by the author of the widely acclaimed book, Generation Debt, Anya Kamenetz. Ms. Kamenetz received her BA from Yale University in 2002. She has written for New York Magazine, The Washington Post, The Nation, and The Village Voice. Ms. Kamenetz earned a Pulitzer Prize nomination for her contribution to the Village Voice series, Generation Debt, The New Economics of Being Young. She is a contributing writer, Fast Company Magazine, a journalistic fellow for the Freelancers Union, and is about to start writing a column for Yahoo Finance. So thank you for joining me today. May I call you Anya? Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, Can you briefly describe Generation Debt's thesis? What, What is your book's message? Well, my book talks about the incredible array of economic challenges that are facing basically young people, people, you know, people under 35, really, in today's economy. And so I talk about the rising cost of education, the increased use of loans to pay for that education, and the changing job market that's facing young people as they try to compete uh, with the uh, decline of, of benefits, in many cases, uh, shortening the job tenure and increasing and changing from job to job, many young people are finding it very hard to establish the financial security that our parents uh, took, sort of took to be the normal course of events if you are entering the middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, well, tell us generally about the origin of your idea for this book. Sure. Well, I graduated from college, as, as you mentioned, in 2002, and I, I moved to New York, uh, you know, right in the throes of a real post-9-11 job slump. Hiring freezes were sort of de rigueur. And um, a lot of people that I knew were suddenly struggling with, you know, obviously the attributes that everyone struggles with when they come out of college, finding a place to live, finding a job, and and getting yourself established. And it just uh, sort of struck me as I was talking to people from different generations that something had really changed uh, in the fact that so many people were dealing with such large burdens of debt to pay off after college, and that the the benefits that they've been promised were not always forthcoming, either right away or even after five or ten years of of working on it. So that's when I started to make the connections and looking around between uh, what was going on politically versus what my friends and I were experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, You gathered a lot of the information from your book from um, first-hand interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, That must have given you a great sense of what's on the mind of the youth market. Um, were there any interesting interviews that didn't make it into your book? Um, or alternatively, what were the most interesting insights you gleaned from these interviews? Well, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I talk to people. I hear people every day who say, you know, you should have talked to me for the book. Yeah, you should do a sequel and talk to me about this book. Um, because there's just so many stories like this out there. And, you know, I just think um, there was a young woman who posted on my blog the other day, and she had a story of, Growing up in a in a uh, Texas oil town with a small business that sort of went bust in the 80s, and whenever she went home every day, she would check to see if the lights were still on in her house because her parents always had problems with, with predators and with debt. And growing up, however, she still had the dream that she was going to go to college and, and establish a better life for herself than she herself and her family had been able to have. So, you know, here, fast forward, here she is 15 years later, a graduate degree uh, under her belt, uh, of the $50,000 of student loan debt, uh, had tried various types of careers, started her own business, and, uh, you know, really, really struggling under the weight of the debt that she'd taken off her education and not understanding. She said that she really, you know, as much as she takes responsibility for her own situation and, and understands that she needs to get out of that debt, that 
uh, she didn't really understand what she was taking on when she first borrowed to go to college and then to graduate school, and she wished that someone had a more frank conversation with her about the the consequences of that debt and the, the chances that she'd be able to earn an income that would allow her to pay it back. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, what I, that's what I hear from a lot of people, just a lot of despair and a lot of feeling that they, they just didn't understand, you know, what they were getting into. Mm-hmm. Well, and in recent months, the issue of consumer over-indebtedness has captured the attention of the media and even Congress. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I attended a Senate hearing um, in which representatives from three major credit card issuers were grilled about some of their business practices that have led uh, to consumers getting themselves into trouble, um, right. and specifically cross-default provisions, late fees, over-limit fees, unilateral interest rate increases. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it seems as if the business model adopted by the credit card industry, if it's not designed to confuse consumers, certainly results in confusion, which can lead to the financial disaster that you were just describing. Um, how do you think we as a society can best address this problem specifically among the 18 to 35 age demographic? Well, it's very interesting, Lois, and I, you know, I saw those, those hearings with a lot of interest as well, and I think we're seeing across the board, you know, whether it's with credit cards, with student loans, or with the subprime mortgage market, there's an increasing awareness that the financial services industry, under the cloak of promoting financial responsibility and giving people options, giving people, you know, the, the chance and the choice to uh, make their own decisions about credit, they've actually instituted a lot of really irresponsible processes and procedures, and they've done it without much uh, real, I think, scrutiny and oversight by on the part of the federal government. So, you know, there's a lot of catching up to do uh, to reinstate the idea that not only do borrowers have responsibility for their own debt, but that creditors have a responsibility to make sure that they're not lending people too much money or lending people money they can never get repaid, and that the terms are transparent, that they're fair, and that there are recourses for people when they when they fall into real trouble with their debt. And, you know, the fact is that you pay an interest rate on debt, whether it's a student loan or a credit card, uh, you pay that interest rate because the... Uh, the bank is taking a risk on you, and that interest is part of the money that they get back in case, you know, you don't make good on your debt. And so I think that it's it's only fair that borrowers have similar protections. And as we move into what I hope is going to be a more humane uh, set of reforms for the credit industry, it's incumbent upon us to institute financial literacy and financial education among young people and to realize that there's a lot that they don't know about credit and debt and that they need to understand that the system is not set up as it currently is set up. It's not there to help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, you devote a chapter in your book to the high cost of college, college tuition and um, focus on student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the end of your book, you speak of the concepts of de-schooling and unschooling. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you mean by that? And are you advocating that today's high school seniors avoid college because of the high cost? Um, I, would, I would never advocate for anyone to avoid college, and, and I, I certainly think that college access is one of the most important issues facing uh, America as a whole today in, in terms of our future competitiveness. But the concepts that I was talking about in the book really have to do with taking charge of your own education and realizing that you know, it, the credentialism and the, and the sitting through classes just to get a degree is not going to provide you the true benefits of education, that there are many people out there who have managed to succeed through being self-taught and following their own passions. Um, you know, with, technology, with the technology revolution, we have amazing examples of people like Bill Gates who were college dropouts and 
managed to uh, really make a niche for themselves, to say the least. And I think that, you know, information due to the Internet revolution, it's more available to people than ever. And, you know, the idea of going to college just so you can uh, have access to, you know, the degree or the credential, it's not really a good idea anymore. I think that people really need to know you know, why they're studying, what they're studying, uh, where it's going to lead. And, you know, and in many cases, I think it would benefit people to uh, choose, either choose a different path or choose, you know, take some time off to realize what it is that they really want to be studying. Mm-hmm. So you're, in essence, advocating that students become better consumers. That's right. It's a question. consumers about what, what it is they're purchasing. That's absolutely right. And, you know, not many people are aware of this, but the education department says that only about 56% of students finish their four-year degrees within six years. Mm-hmm. So there's very, very low graduation rate. There's a high burn rate of students that go into college. And I think that's really a consequence of people not realizing what it is that they're getting into. And, you know, becoming a better consumer of education isn't just about looking for a better deal. It's about really understanding what it is that you're trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to do that, you have to know yourself. That's, that's very interesting. Um, you devote another couple of chapters to low-wage jobs, internships, and temp jobs. Mm-hmm. Aren't these a rite of passage for those starting out in a field? In other words, I, I mean, when I was um, in college, I had internships. I certainly had low-wage jobs, and mm-hmm. each one of those led to something more substantial. Um, what What is your your um, concern about what you see as the um, ubiquity of um, these entry-level positions for the members of your generation? You know, I'm not against people paying their dues and starting out at a low wage, and I think that, uh, you know, the growth of internships is very admirable in some sense because it does indicate that, you know, college, college students want to get experience in the working world. They want to get, you know, hit the ground running and start out there with some relevant experience. But what I'm really concerned is that, you know, as we shift into, in many industries are shifting to a model of, of increasing freelance and contract and independent work. Old uh, job job paths and, and tracks are just not working the way they used to. And uh, when, when people go into these entry-level jobs and, and temporary jobs and, and even internships, I think that there's, there's always an expectation that there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that what happens increasingly is that, Instead of at the end of the tunnel, you know, you have you have an outsourcing or you have an offshoring or, or a company divests, and it's very tr- tricky for people now to decide to invest, you know, some of their lives and pay their lives and pay their dues uh, at a company where they don't even know if the industry is going to be there in the next five years. So, uh, you know, it's just it's a difficult situation for people. I think it's hard for people to uh, to make ends meet at an entry level job. Uh, the minimum wage is lower than it's ever been. And you also have to understand the, the social equality effects of it. If you have to get an unpaid internship in order to make your way in the world of broadcasting, media, fashion, design, art, politics, Hollywood, then all of those industries are uh, not benefiting from the contributions of people that have to work for a living. Mm-hmm. The, the, the chapter on health care w- was also very interesting. Um, What's your reaction to what the candidates for the um, next presidential election are saying about the health care crisis? I mean, do you see a political solution to this or a business solution? Well, I think the best thing about it is that both political and business interests are all pushing for a solution. There's a really broad consensus that hasn't been seen in America for a long time that the current system is not working. Uh, what I'm concerned about with the, with the 
the solutions that have been put forth thus far, you know, I really only heard from what the Democratic candidates have to say. And, uh, you know, I'm worried that, oddly enough, that they're not being bold enough in terms of preserving the existing, the existing employer-based uh, elements of that employer-based system and letting people keep the coverage that they have if they're happy with it. Obviously, I understand the political considerations with that kind of idea, but if you look at young people, young people are the largest and fastest growing group in America without health insurance, and we're not invested in the current system. Mm-hmm. So any kind of system that allows older people to keep their 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 health care but excludes younger people, and, you know, it's not going to work for us because, and it doesn't make sense on a broader scale either because younger people, you know, it's, it's cheaper to insure us than it is to insure anyone else. We're the healthiest. And we need to be included in, in any kind of pool or plan in order for it to be cost effective. And so I would like to see more candidates looking at, you know, what is it that young people really prize? You know, we prize flexibility. We, pri- we prize the ability to take our benefits with us when we change jobs or if we want to work alone. And, you know, we want we want to be able to buy into the level of coverage that's acceptable and, and reasonable for us. And we also want to be able to have preventative care. So, uh, you know, I just want to... I hope that the conversation continues. I think we'll see a lot more ideas coming forward as, you know, the uh, the campaign continues. And I just I haven't heard exactly what I want to yet. Uh-huh. We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. Both Delta and Northwest Airlines successfully emerged from their bankruptcy proceedings over the past month. They filed for Chapter 11 on the same day in September 2005. Delta and Northwest are the last of four major U.S. carriers to climb out of bankruptcy after a downturn caused by the September 11th attacks, high fuel prices, and the burdens of high labor and pension expenses. Northwest emerged on Thursday, having shed $2.4 billion off of its annual costs after 20 months in Chapter 11. Earlier this month, its three biggest unions objected to the company's reorganization plan, saying that its plan to give executives almost 5% of the company was too much in light of the concessions made by the unions. Delta emerged from bankruptcy on April 30th, having restructured its debts and slashed labor and pension costs, resulting in annual cost savings of $3 billion. Delta's flight out of bankruptcy was also not without its own turbulence, as the company was able to successfully emerge amid the threat of a hostile takeover by U.S. Airways in January. While both have successfully emerged from reorganization, the airlines are still cautious about their financial footing, given the fierce global competition within the industry and continual takeover rumors swirling around the carriers. This has been John Hartgen of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Um, the, the, the subtitle of your book, uh, How Our mm-hmm. Future Was Sold Out for Student Loans, Credit Cards, Bad Jobs, No Benefit, and Tax Cuts for Rich Users, and How to Fight, mm-hmm. pack, fight mm-hmm. Back. Um, is, is this hyperbole or not? Um, well, the question is, it depends on what your definition of sold out is, right? So I think that it's clear that, you know, the baby boomers have been the dominant constituency in this country for a long time. Um, many, many decisions are being made with, towards, towards, with an eye towards their interests and their welfare. And I don't see the same concern for young people's ideas and young people's interests. Um, 
and you can look at that on a fiscal basis. You can look at that with decisions that we're making or not making about funding education. Um, but I think in a lot of the different areas, you can definitely make the the you can make the assumption that politicians have made a conclusion that young people don't vote, therefore they don't have to listen to them, and that's that's kind of where the selling out happens. Mm-hmm. And the, but the fact is, the the um, polls suggest that young people don't vote, at least right. not in the numbers that make a difference. And one of the reasons why the senior lobby is so strong, or senior interests are heard, is because they do vote in very large numbers. Um, what, right. what, what can we do about that? Well, I mean, uh, American democracy is in trouble, you know? I mean, the, the voting declines along each, each age level. Boomers also vote less than the greatest generation does. And even though there's been a slight revival in youth voting rates over the last two elections, which have been very high interest, uh, you know, we do have a really big problem. And I think, you know, it's it's a question of well-founded cynicism. You know, young people believe that the system is corrupted by monetary interests, that they don't really have a way to make their voices heard in a way that's meaningful. And, uh, you know, I think that there hasn't been a real appeal in a long time to something that would actually change that system in a way that would get people back into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so what advice can you offer members of your generation to um, try to um, alleviate uh, some of some of these concerns? Well, you know, I, I, I speak on a lot of campuses, and at the end of my PowerPoint, um, I've got a big old picture of John Stewart, and I say, you know, there's, there's personal solutions, and I say there's political solutions. Um, and I kind of have John looking both ways and, and saying that, you know, it, it's one thing to uh, to sit at home and laugh and complain about what's going on, but now that you have the information, you're really uh, sort of, the onus is on you to do something about it. So on the first hand, I definitely advocate personal financial responsibility, you know, educating yourself, putting in a savings plan, managing your debt. I don't think there's any excuse for people to be piling up credit card debt when they already have student loans to pay off. You know, so I, so I talk a lot about that. I think that uh, it's really important to have sources of information like this one online and that young people have a, you know, responsibility to learn a little something about the world of money that they're going to be entering. And then, on the other hand, I really do advocate political solutions. I think that we need to, as, as a generation, we need to be supporting politicians and rewarding politicians and stand up for our interests. I think that... Um, you know, there are some great examples of that. I'm going up to Maine next week to testify in front of the Legislative Committee for a group called Opportunity Maine. And what they've done is they, they gathered uh, tens of thousands of signatures to support a ballot measure that would allow young students who stay in Maine after graduating from college uh, reward them with a tax credit to help them pay off their student loans. So it would amount to a tax benefit for students who decide to stay in the state to, uh, you know, contribute their innovation and their youth and their education to the state and um, hopefully help to grow opportunities for others who stay in the state as well. That's so, well, Maine is my home state. So. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, I'm going to be... Oh, yeah, I've heard of this initiative, and that's, um, that's wonderful. Oh, You're wonderful. To testify. Yeah, no, they've been, you know, it's been really great. They, uh, I met them last, last year. I spoke at the University of Maine, and I met this whole cache of students, and they said that they read the book and, you know, it's part of their sort of process of coming up with this idea. So uh-huh. I'm really delighted to be able to help out. And, and I love the fact that it's all student-led. That's great. That's wonderful to hear. Is that the University of Maine in Orno? Or? In Orno, that's right. Oh, terrific. Well, that's, yeah. that's exciting. I, I thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so 
What advice do you have for members of, of my generation? I have a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old. Um, mm-hmm. What What is it that that we can do um, a little more established in our careers and, and hopefully um, mindful of the importance of the generations coming behind us? Right, right. Well, I think that, you know, I've heard from a lot of parents who read the book and, and with their own responses and, and a lot of, you know, people saying that, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see that, you know, this isn't just a personal uh, problem that's happening to my kids, but it's something that it's really affecting a whole generation. So I think that for parents to be aware of what's changed and to realize that they are their children's main source of information about financial matters. I mean, it's really striking to know that, you know, we, we don't have any financial curriculum in the public schools. All we have is the messages that, that parents provide to their children as far as how to deal with that, how to deal with credit, um, how to manage your money with, with integrity. And I think that it's just so important to have those conversations to break down the taboos around money and, and uh, you know, really share with your kids, you know, your own hopes for the future, your own fears. and you know, to realize that ultimately all generations have a common goal and that's to help to endow the future. I mean, everyone in America wants their own children to have a better future than they themselves were able to have. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This is quite interesting. Um, I'm Lois Lupica, and this has been another podcast of the American Bank of Thanks for having me.